Today's text can be found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. They'd also be on the screen behind me. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Before, uh, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody, if you are not a member of Orlando Grace Church and you're interested in becoming a member or just want to learn more about the church, we have our Discover OGC class that starts this evening. It's going to be a three-week class from uh, about 5.30 to 7.00. And it's just a time where we can, uh, where you can get to know what, who we are, what we believe, what we do, uh, and hopefully a time where I can just get to know you and answer any questions. Uh, it's a, it's a, something we do very intentionally, and we invite you to join us. It's okay if you haven't signed up. Uh, we have a good crowd already. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and we do provide childcare. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask, but that's going on starting tonight, uh, 5.30 to about 7. It's new, so I'll, I'll try to land at 7. We'll just see how it plays out. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 9. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you may remember that Matthew is trying to make a very specific point clear. And that point is that Jesus has authority. 
So back in chapter 7, he, he said that Jesus teaches as one who has authority. And then chapter 8, he started to prove that authority. So we saw Jesus healing illnesses to show that he has authority over our physical bodies. We saw Jesus calming a storm that shows Jesus actually has authority over the whole natural order. And he doesn't stop there. He sees that, that we see Jesus casting out demons to show that he even has authority over the spiritual order. And then in our text, he takes it one notch higher. And he tells us that Jesus has authority over our greatest ailment, over our biggest problem, over sin. That's what we're going to be looking at. And before we dive in, I want to say thank you to Skylar, who filled in for me last week. Um, many of you know Angela and I. Four Sundays a year, we're going to be gone to be speaking at Family Life's uh, Weekend to Remember conferences. And this is something that we, we care a lot about, and we're really thankful to you, the church, to allow us to, to be gone those four Sundays. Uh, we... <laughs> We see some crazy things at these conferences. We've seen some funny things. Um, I've seen wives literally trick their husbands into going. They did not know where they were going until they walk into the ballroom. I had one young lady ask me if she could do a solo, uh, because if she could do a solo, in her words, in front of these thousand people, then the Holy Spirit would show up. Like, okay, I don't see things the way you do. It sounds like you're a great singer. Um, and, but we see a lot of sad things, too. We see it's not uncommon to have uh, couples show up with their divorce papers in hand. Um, we actually, this, this past week, uh, saw something I hadn't seen before. We had a, a couple get in a fight, in such a significant fight that security had to be brought in and they had to escort the husband away. And it's, it's just, it's sad. There's so many complicating issues coming into a lot of these conferences. And so we prayed for that man. And then not long after he was escorted off the property, another man came up to me. He was a, a bigger, kind of tough-looking dude, maybe in his early to mid-50s. And he came over to me, and he explained that he had been invited to this conference by the guy who had just been ushered away from the conference. And I said, okay, how, how are you doing? And this big, tough, manly-looking guy looked at me, and he started to cry. And I said, are you, is it, tell me what's going on. And he looked at me and he said, it's just hit me. What a truly bad person I am. He said, I'm I'm not talking about crimes, you know, illegal crimes that I've committed. He said, I'm realizing what a rotten person that I am at my core, how much I live for myself and how it's affected my wife and my relationship with God. And then he said, I feel like I'm sick and there's nothing I can do about it. I don't know if you you hear what he's saying. He's saying, I see that I'm sinful and I have no power in and of myself to deal with this sin. And if you have ever felt like that or if you feel like that right, right now, this passage has really good news to you because to all of us, because Matthew is saying in the clearest possible way that we don't have power over the sin inside us, but Jesus does. Jesus came with the authority to heal even our sin. So I want to walk through these three stories, which I, I'll explain. I think these, are, these three stories are really one story. And I want to answer a few questions about Jesus having authority over sin. And the first question is, why is it that Jesus has authority, authority to heal sin in the first place? And the answer is pretty simple. Because he's God. 
And we're going to come back to that. But I just want to let you know where we're going in the beginning. He can heal sin. He has the authority over sin because he's God. But before we get there, let me set the context just a little bit. You may remember from two weeks ago, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. He went uh, to the city of the Gadarenes. And there he cast demons out of these two men. And the demons went into the pigs. The pigs then went off the cliff into the sea. And they all drowned. And so many of the people in, in the city were confused. They were scared. Some of them were angry. I guess if you own the pigs, you'd be angry. And they told Jesus, leave here right now. And so Jesus left. Matthew tells us that he has returned to his city. And now we see, it, you know, if, it, if you only have Matthew's account, it seems like he lands and immediately these people bring this paralyzed person up to him. But we know from Luke and Mark's account that that's not what happened. We know that, that Jesus is teaching in a home and that home is so full of people on the inside, on the outside, that these, these people can't get their paralyzed friend inside to see Jesus. So they climb up on top of the house, they open the roof, and they, they lower this man, this paralyzed man, in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And I think right there, you would have had a lot of surprised people. Not least of which I think was the paralyzed man. I mean, I could imagine him saying, thank you, Jesus. I'm, I'm glad for my sins being healed uh, or forgiven. But I, what I really am here for is for my legs to work again. That's what I came to do. Thank you for this other thing, but this is what I'm looking. And when he says that, you can see that he doesn't realize his main problem. What he, he's come into this place not looking for a savior. He's looking for a magician. He, he's, not, he's not looking for, for spiritual healing. He's looking for physical healing. So he's coming to get what he thinks is his greatest need. And Jesus is saying, you have a greater need. Your ailment with your body is not your biggest need. Your ailment with your heart is. Your greatest ailment, your greatest problem, your greatest sickness is sin. And for me, when I was walking into my Christian faith in in the early days in college, one of the things that really drew me to Christianity and to Jesus is because only Jesus really gave me a, a satisfying answer about where sin comes from and how it's dealt with. There was no other worldview that satisfied me. Every other worldview basically to me was like Angela from The Office. Do you remember the show The Office? No, I'm not, not my wife, Angela. This is Angela from The Office. Angela from The Office, she was the blonde. She was the, the church-going, really condescending hypocrite in the group. And she, she was kind of the, like the line of delineation, you know? She would say, you're morally in, you're morally out. You're morally in, you're morally out. And, and the line kind of moved a little bit. And again, she, was, she didn't even meet her own standards. But to me, that's every other worldview. There was this, this arbitrary line, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, and it didn't connect with me. Jesus, though, he says something very different. He says the bar, he, he doesn't give us a line of delineation. He gives us a bar and says that bar is perfect obedience to God. And all of you fail. We fail because we're sinners. And we talked a few weeks ago about when I say we're sinners, I'm not talking about sin isn't all the bad decisions that we make. Sin is the reason that we make all these bad decisions. Sin is this underlying disease that causes us to not want Jesus to be king of our life. And sin is so pervasive in us that we can't even see that we're sinful often. We can't even see that Jesus is what we need. And that's the paralytic in the story. He doesn't see his greatest need because he is a sinner. He has Jesus in front of him. 
Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, he can ask him for anything. And he doesn't ask him for his greatest need. He asks him that his body would be healed. I mean, at the end of the day, even if Jesus heals his body, he still has sin. He's still going to die. And he's still going to have to answer to God for that sin. I was thinking this week, imagine if you went to the doctor because you had some ailment that causes you to lose all the hair on your body. And you go to the doctor and the doctor says, all right, I've I've figured it out. And he hands you a wig. How would you feel? It's like, okay, I mean, I I guess there's a place for that, but we've missed the whole point. The underlying disease has not been identified and fixed. That's how every other worldview approaches our morality and our issue of sin. The paralytic is asking for the symptom to be cured. He's not asking for the disease to be cured. He doesn't understand the underlying disease because all of the pain that we experience in this world, all of the strife, all of the illness, everything exists because sin's in the world. I was thinking you really can divide all religious worldviews into two camps. You have Angela from the office and you have Jesus. Those fundamentally are the two camps. Because only Jesus offers a way to heal sin. Only Jesus is offering a way for the sin problem to be fundamentally fixed. And when he says this, how do the the Pharisees respond? So we have the the paralytic who's surprised because that wasn't what he was asking for. Then we have the Pharisees who are angry. Blasphemer is what they call him. You blasphemer because they rightly understood only God has the power and the authority to forgive sin. So Jesus saying, take heart, your sins are forgiven, was paramount to him saying, I am God, come in the flesh. And this again is what separates Christianity from every other worldview out there. It's how you deal with sin. Every other religion offers a way for sin to be overlooked. Only Jesus offers a way for sin to be healed. That's a very different way to look at the whole problem of sin because Jesus could have said take heart I overlook your sin he could have said that and he would have still been making a claim to be God but he would be making a claim that he is not a good God but a bad God because a good God doesn't just overlook sin I mean imagine if in the Orlando Sentinel there was an article that came out that there one of our judges was just letting serious criminals off the hook just letting them go how would you feel You'd probably be outraged. That's not a good judge. That's not what he's there to do. Well, that's what every other religion is claiming at the end of the day is happening. We're overlooking sin, but Jesus is coming and he's saying that he's not overlooking sin, he's atoning sin. He's come to pay the penalty for our sin, to offer his body as the sacrifice and then create a way where the Holy Spirit can come inside of us and begin to conform us into his image. We're going from sinful toward the perfect image of Jesus Christ. And this isn't a a, a process that will finish before we die or Jesus comes back, but it is initiated in this life. Only Jesus offers that. Everything else is a way to overlook or forget about your sin. And I think Jesus could have just said, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And he could have just said that, and that, that be it. But he wanted to show that he has the authority to do this, so he followed that up with, now stand up and walk. And he does. 
So Matthew is saying that Jesus has the ability to heal sin. But what we haven't seen yet is, all right, I like the idea. How is that made true of me? How is, how is that appropriated in my life? That's the second question that Matthew answers. What is necessary for sin to be healed? So first, for your sin, for my sin, for any of our sin to be healed, you have to be called. The, the paralytic, again, he wasn't looking for spiritual healing. He was looking for physical healing. He had no idea what Jesus had planned for him until Jesus told him what he had planned for him. And we see the same exact thing in Matthew when Jesus goes and calls Matthew. Look at verse nine. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So I mentioned in the beginning, I can imagine some of you wondering, why is Jim putting these three different stories together. And the reason is because I don't think they're different stories. I think Matthew has one point here, and we're going to see three things that link these stories together. And the first one is sin. So we know that the paralytic is sinful because he says your, your sins are forgiven, but then we see Matthew's calling. And although the word sin isn't in there, any original reader would have read this, these words, sitting at the tax booth, and they would have just heard sin. Because in that day, a tax collector was the lowest of low. To be a tax collector, you up front, out of your own pocket, you paid Rome a portion of the taxes that Israel owes. Then you were basically buying the right to go and then tax Israelites as you see fit and get rich in the process. So what Matthew and the other tax collectors are fundamentally doing is paying the occupying forces by stealing from his own people and getting rich in the process. If there was anyone in that society who was clearly understood to be a sinner, it was the tax collectors. It was Matthew. And he was so despised, in fact, that there were these extra biblical laws that were added to understand how we're to relate with such terrible people like tax collectors. So you had laws that said they could not go to the synagogue and worship. You had laws that say, yeah, we know we're not supposed to lie unless you're talking to a tax collector. Then it's okay to lie. I mean, these were absolutely horribly despised people. And these were the type of people that Jesus is spending time with. So the Pharisees do not like it. But what I want us to see in Matthew is that he was not concerned about following God. He doesn't seem concerned that he wasn't allowed to even go and worship in the synagogue. The only reason that Matthew follows Jesus is because Jesus called him. The only reason that the paralytic believed in Jesus and had his sins forgiven is because Jesus called him. And the only reason that any of us in this room believe in Jesus Christ is because he first called us. And every time he calls us, you're going to see two things happen, repentance and faith. And so these are, these are two, they say, separate but inseparable acts to enter the kingdom of God. We have to repent from our sins, but we don't stop there. We turn to Jesus. We follow Jesus. So I want to break those two things down very quickly. First, repenting, turning from our sin. We need to see not just that we make bad decisions, and, and maybe not even that we have this underlying disease called sin that causes us to make bad decisions. We need to see that it isn't this, this kind of virus that you catch, you know, and you're passively, whoop, now I'm a sinner. It's like you, you catch the flu. We need to see that we are actively involved in the rebellion against God. That's why we, call, we make all these decisions. And we need to see at some level that we're actively 
we actively take a share in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We are that culpable. That's what it means to repent of our sin. I was reading this week about uh, a famous Rembrandt painting, and I'm not a big art guru, so I learned all this for the first time. The painting is called uh, The Raising of the Cross, and it became really famous not just because it's Rembrandt, but because Rembrandt drew himself into the painting. I don't know if you've seen this painting before, and he drew himself into the painting as one who was raising the cross with Jesus on it. And I have no idea where Rembrandt is spiritually, but he understood at least that he does share at some level in the crucifixion of Jesus. He seems to understand that, that he is a sinner and he seems at some level to be repenting of that sin. And that has to be true of all of us if we are going to enter into the kingdom of God. So that's repentance. Secondly, so we don't just turn from our sin, that would be a miserable state to be in. I, I don't like my sin, but I don't know what to do about it. God gives us Jesus to turn to. We turn to Jesus. And I, I love that in the paralytic and Matthew, there was both a getting up and a going. So the paralytic was told, rise, walk, and he did. Matthew was told, stand and follow, and he did. This, I think, is a picture of that not just turning from sin, but following Jesus, going to Jesus. Luke actually adds in his account that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. I mean, he would have had to. Think about all the ways that he made money. He had to leave all of that behind. He probably left some friends and family behind. It cost Matthew to follow Jesus, but to follow Jesus to Matthew was worth it. I mean, this is Matthew writing his own account of Matthew's calling. And you think about what it means to follow somebody. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that you know every step. I mean, if you knew every step of the way, you wouldn't need to follow anybody, right? But it does mean you have some idea of the destination. And in Jesus Christ, we understand, while we don't know every, every single piece of the path that we're going to follow on, we know it's going to be a path of self-denial. We know we're going to be taking stances that aren't popular. We know that we're going to deny ourselves rights and privileges that we want but we do it because we know the destination. We know that we're following him to a new kingdom and a new earth with new bodies where we get to exist and dwell with Jesus forever without any of the pain or strife or sin in our minds and our bodies and our hearts or souls in this world. That's the final destination, so we follow him. It was worth it for Matthew and it's worth it for us because Jesus, when he comes to us, he isn't just giving us this moral standard that we can't do anything about. He's saying, follow me. And when he does it, he gives us a new foundation in the spirit and the Holy Spirit inside of us. And he gives us a new destination in the new kingdom and the new earth. And so, these conferences that we do, it, it really is becoming quite common for me to talk with somebody who will say something like this. I hear you, Jim, but I've just walked this path for too long. My decisions, I've made too many bad decisions. I have too many bad habits. My wife and I, we seem like we're too far away. I just think it's too late. And if, if you feel like that today, I want you to, I want you to hear this, this illustration. When Angela and I lived in, in Pisa, we had this small little apartment, but outside of our window, you could see the most recognizable landmark on earth, which was the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And so the Leaning Tower, it leans because it was built on a bad foundation. So I think sometime around 1142, they started this, this tower. 
and it, it began to lean before they even finished it. So you can actually see, if you look at it, that it curves <laughs> because they're trying to compensate. Well, they finished this tower and it was leaning by 0.2 degrees. And flash, fast forward 800 years to the 1900s, the 20th century, it's gone from 0.2 degrees to 5 degrees. So now the top is something like 15 feet south of the bottom. <laughs> and we, we had things we tried to do to, to, you know, to fix it. And from what I understand, they caused more harm than they actually helped. And we began to develop computer models. And the computer said, all right, 5.4 degrees. That's when this thing falls over. And then I think in the 80s, it hit 5.5 degrees. So all the computer models say this thing should be down. Somehow it's still up. And then in the 90s, we figured out how to go underneath it and make a whole new foundation. And now it's, now it's secure, now it's solid. So if we begin to think that it's too late for Jesus Christ to come in and help our lives and to, to restore us, to redeem us and to heal our sin, we don't understand that Jesus' mission, it isn't just to fix us a little bit, it's to give us an entirely new foundation. And if I'm totally biblically faithful, really, we're not just leaning over, we've fallen down. We have fallen down, we have toppled, we've broken to pieces and Jesus comes in and he doesn't come in just to make us a little bit straighter but still leaning for a long time. He comes in and he makes us new. Jesus comes in and he makes us children. Children of the most high God. I mean, this is what John says in John 1. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This isn't just morally better. You know, Jesus doesn't come that we can meet Angela from the office as standards. Jesus comes to make us children of the Most High with all the rights and the privileges and the access that a true child has to his Father, the Most High. I mean, this is so different than every other worldview that exists because Jesus isn't coming to call us out. He's coming to heal us. He's coming to redeem us. He's coming to give us a new life and a new kingdom. And he even comes to give us a spirit that longs for the father that we naturally rebel against. He gives us his spirit and we long for Abba Father. We call to the father. We're drawn to the father. We want to honor and submit and glorify and worship the father. This is totally different than the way we are naturally born into this world. So when we repent and we put our faith in Jesus, we don't just get off the hook we become children of the beloved children of the Most High. That's how Jesus heals our sin. But in this text, Matthew includes one more thing. He includes a result, a short-term result for all of us of Jesus healing our sin. The short-term result is that there will be opposition in this world. So here we get to the second link between the stories, the reason that I included these together. You see opposition all throughout. The first opposition came from the Pharisees when they called Jesus a blasphemer. So they're, they're opposing him by questioning his authority. Then the second opposition came from the Pharisees and scribes when they said, you hang out with tax collectors and sinners. So now they're not questioning his authority, they're questioning his morals and his character. And so how does Jesus respond to these first two oppositions? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So back then, you did not have a hospital. There were no doctor's offices that you went to. The doctor came to you. The doctor sought out the sick people. 
And so Jesus is saying it would be ridiculous to quarantine the doctor from the sick people. It would be ridiculous to talk poorly about the doctor who goes into the home of the physically sick and tries to heal them. In the same way, Pharisees and scribes, it makes, it's ridiculous for you to look at me, the soul doctor, and ridicule me for going into the spiritually sick and pursuing them. And when Jesus says that those who are well have no need of a physician, he is not saying that those people are well. This is the way N.T. Wright, actually this isn't N.T. Wright, excuse me, one other commentary, I think it's Jim Boyce. He says, this doesn't mean that his critics were spiritually healthy. These critics were as paralyzed by their sin as the paralytic and as unclean as the tax collectors. And what Jesus is doing, he's actually referencing Hosea 6.6. And in Hosea 6, Hosea is attacking the same kind of Angela from the office type of religion. You know, the same kind of religious, self-righteous religion that, that makes us feel better about ourselves because we're morally higher than other people. And so Jesus, and I think this would have been extremely offensive to the Pharisees and the scribes, he's saying, go and learn this. Hosea 6, your, your text that you claim to be an expert on, you need to go and learn it. Because I don't require sacrifice. I don't require going through the religious hoops. I require mercy. A mercy that only comes from repentance and faith. And had these men had any measure of repentance and faith in their heart, they would have had forgiveness and sorrow and compassion for these people that are separated from the kingdom of God. People like Matthew. And then we see this third level of opposition that comes from the disciples of John the Baptist. And I think probably this story happened a little bit later, but Matthew is including it here because he wants to make a point. And, and it's really poignant because he, he makes this point in this way. Because if you think about it, you have Jesus who has just finished feasting with his, with his people, and you have John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees who are fasting. So two totally different environments, feasting and fasting. So the, the disciples of Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, the disciples of John the Baptist, they're, they're fasting because they're mourning and commemorating all these tragic things that happened in the history of Israel. And so they go, they go and they ask, why is it that, that we're fasting, but your people, they get to feast? This doesn't seem fair. This is the same self-righteous religion. I am, we're working for this thing. We're paying for this thing, for our spiritual status, and you guys are just sitting there enjoying yourselves. It's not fair. That's what the disciples of John the Baptist are saying. And so Jesus answers them by saying one thing in three different ways. All right, we, we, I don't think we need to read too much into these three things. We need to hear them amplifying one message, and that message is Jesus telling them everything is different now. Everything is different now. And he does this by three different contrasts. First, he does it by contrasting a wedding and a funeral. In verse 15, he says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they, then they will fast. So you hear what Jesus is saying. You, you're approaching this like a funeral, and there will be a funeral. He's predicting his own death. But he's saying, right now, the bridegroom is with you. So you don't need to mourn and fast. You get to celebrate and feast. You don't understand that everything is new because you don't understand who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Here's the N.T. Wright quote. And it's worth mentioning. When I quote people, it doesn't mean I'm endorsing everything they write. N.T. Wright had some stuff come out this week I disagree with. I'm just saying that I, I, he's making the point effectively here. He says, because while other movements, including that of John the Baptist, were waiting for the new day to dawn, Jesus believed that the sun had risen. So you see this old and new. Everything is different. And then he makes the same point the second way. He says, you can't mix the old and the new, and he uses cloths as the illustration. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So this isn't any part of my world. I don't understand patches and garments, but from what, I'm, from what I read, so old, old fabric, it has a way of shrinking. And then you put a new patch on a hole on an old fabric, and what happens? Eventually, it shrinks and creates a bigger hole than existed in the first place. So he's saying new and old, new and old. Everything is different. And then third illustration is wine. You can't mix new wine with old wineskins because it will explode. The old and the new, they They aren't the same. And we have to see the new to appreciate the old. And I don't even think Jesus is saying the old is bad. He's saying the old is insufficient. The new has come. Jesus has come. The new covenant has come. The kingdom of God has come. And we can't live in the old way. We have to live in the new way with new eyes and new hearts and a whole new perspective. That's why people oppose him. Because they're thinking in the old way. And the old way is very much akin to every other religion and worldview that exists in our day. So if that old way opposed Jesus, we better believe that it's going to oppose us as well. So we shouldn't be surprised when we respond to the call of Jesus Christ with repentance and faith if we're all of a sudden opposed in some way. In fact, Jesus promises this. John 15 If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Following Jesus will mean opposition. It will mean making unpopular decisions. It will mean giving up rights and desires that we don't want to give up. But it will be worth it if we have the lens of the kingdom, the lens of the new covenant, the lens of all of our sins being healed and atoned by Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. That's how we live and are fueled in the Christian life. So Jesus has come to heal our sins. Some people are going to be confused by this. Some people might be angry that we would be so bold as to say you are a sinner and you need sins to be healed. But to those who who see it, are called, believe, experience the redemption of the Holy Spirit inside of us, those people are going to spread the word. And this is the third link in this passage, spreading the word. I think it's interesting that the paralytic is healed. Why? Because his friends heard Jesus was in the area and spread the word to him. Matthew is called by Jesus. He gets up and he follows. And then what does he do? He goes and gets his friends and tells them there's something about really experiencing the forgiveness of our sins and the Holy Spirit coming into our lives that causes us to worship Jesus. We worship and the natural overflow of that worship is that, that we want to go and tell other people. It's not forced. It is a natural overflow of experiencing a relationship with Jesus Christ where we feel the freedom and liberation from all the things that, that bound us for so long. So that man that I started out talking about at, at the conference, he came, he came up to me and he got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he said, Jim, something crazy has happened. He said, I don't care what people think about me anymore. I'm no longer trying to hide my sin. I just want to live for God. And you hear what he's saying? He was experiencing that, that freedom and that redemption. I don't care who knows anymore. I'm not going to try to hide in my sin. I want to put it out there. I want to repent from it. And then he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to call my friend and see if he'll come back to this conference and see if he'll hear this message. So you're seeing this man respond to Jesus with a joyful heart, worshiping. And, and the direct effect of that worship is that he wanted to spread the word. He wanted his, his friend to hear it. He wanted him to experience it. It was pretty cool that in light of this text, God let me see that this weekend. Because if we are a community who deeply experiences the forgiveness of our sins, if we're a community who's being conformed out of the, the we're, we're, we're not the old creation, we're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us and, and a clear perspective that things are different now. We don't live in the old, we live in the new And the new is a kingdom that is here, now, and coming. If that's how we live, then I don't think you can stop the word from spreading from among us. We will see the kingdom grow through us. And I think we'll experience a purpose and a joy and a satisfaction that nothing else in this life can provide for us. Let's pray. God, we all come to you as sinners. And that that word is so heavy and it should be. But we come to you as sinners who, who have been offered Jesus Christ, who have been offered a way out, who can don't have to live in the misery of that sin, but we get to experience the joy of you and your word and your gospel and your spirit through your son. And so I pray this morning that all of us, that we would experience it more that we would walk in it more, that we would worship more, that we would glory in it more, and that, uh, that there would be this tangible overflow of us wanting to tell other people about Jesus, not because we're guilted into it or because we're forced, but because you are doing such a profound work in our hearts. So I pray for those of us who have followed Jesus for one year or five years or 50 years, that it would be newer and fresher today than it was last week. And I pray for anybody in our midst who has never experienced repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that today would be the day. We ask this in Jesus' name, in the power of your spirit, amen.